Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series called Full Life that we've been in for a number of weeks now. And this sermon series derives from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So we've been asking ourselves through this series, what are our lives full of? Are they full of what Jesus came to give us? Or are they full of all sorts of other things? And we've been exploring that life that Jesus came to give us and how can we grab hold of it more and more. When I was serving a church in Austin, Texas, I was working in youth, college, and young adult ministry, and every spring break, we would take a team up to 100 high school and college students and leaders to Tijuana, Mexico. And we went there to primarily build houses. Very simple houses, probably, I'm trying to go back a little ways in my memory to remember the dimensions, but probably 12 by 24 rectangles, simple stud walls, you know, wood panel siding, cutouts for windows if that's what the homeowner wanted, just stick frame roof construction, you know, very simple. And we did all of this using hand tools, even making the foundation out of concrete. If you know concrete, you know that concrete is a mix of cement and sand and often larger stone aggregate and then the right amount of water. And what we would do is we would integrate all these dry ingredients. We'd mix them all together and we'd create what we called volcanoes where we'd kind of hollow out the middle and we'd begin to fill it with water and we'd take shovels and we would turn it and mix it and turn it and mix it by hand over and over and over again until it got to the right consistency. And we probably had to make four or five or six volcanoes for every foundation that we laid. But all of these ingredients had to be mixed in the right ratio, the right proportions in order to make a strong and durable foundation. You know, generally, the more cement you put into it, the stronger the concrete will get until you reach a tipping point. And then you keep adding more and it becomes more brittle. If you have too much sand, it'll also become brittle and weak and won't last over time. You know, if you put too much water, it weakens the concrete as well. It has to be the right consistency, a lot like oatmeal. Of course, I probably shouldn't say that because some of you like watery oatmeal and I don't understand you. You know, I like my oatmeal nice and thick, like when you turn over the spoon, it doesn't actually fall off. Which is probably actually part of the problem when I was mixing these volcanoes. I struggled to get it to the right consistency that was needed. Because you need the right mix, all of these ingredients mixed together with the right proportion to have strong and durable and lasting concrete. In other words, to have foundations that had integrity that wouldn't fall apart. And this is true in our lives. That we need to have a certain right, appropriate mix. Our lives need to be integrated in order to have integrity, in order to have a full life that is intended for us in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at this idea of what needs to be integrated. What are our lives of integrity to look like? And we're going to do that through the letter of James. And if you want, you can follow along on the screen as we listen for God's word for us this morning. This comes from James chapter 2. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this time, of this place, and even more the gift of who you are to us, the God who speaks, God who leads, the God who shapes us, the God who guides us and intends for us to have full life. May you use this word in this time to those ends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So James in this passage is talking about integrity. Integrity has a few different definitions. It can mean uncorrupted or unimpaired or undivided. In other words, it can mean pure or sound or complete. So concrete that's well mixed in right proportions is pure, is sound, is complete. It has integrity. And so James is asking an integrity question. When he says, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? If faith and works, faith and deeds, faith and action are not integrated, what good is it? Will that faith be enough to save him? In other words, to save him from sin and his life of self-centeredness? And James answers the question with another question, doesn't he? He says, suppose some of you see a brother or sister that's struggling, doesn't have clothes to wear or food to eat, and you say, well, I wish you well, you know, keep warm, well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In other words, obviously no good. It does nothing for that person in tangible, material, physical way. And so the well wishes mean very little when we've done nothing to actually feed or clothe them. And this is probably an example that we can relate to. You know, we, we may have a propensity at times in our life to say, you know what, I'll pray for you, when we probably could have taken a step and gotten more involved. But it's easier just to step back and say a prayer and a blessing over them when maybe we're to be the answer to the prayer. But we do know somewhere inside of us that getting involved is messy, isn't it? 
When we start to get involved, we get involved in people's lives, in their stories, in their problems, in their sinfulness, their self-justification. We start to get to see and, and we get stretched and challenged because to really serve becomes costly to us and messy, doesn't it? Because we get our lives somewhat entangled in their life. And so the temptation is to not get involved. But it also, we don't want to get involved, I think, often because it can be overwhelming to us, can't it? Because the reality is the needs of people never end, do they? There's no shortage. As a matter of fact, it only seems to be growing. That over the last number of months, we've been serving record numbers of clients through the Hope Center, through our food pantry, through the assistance programs. The need is growing in our community and in our country. We know it gets a little overwhelming when we step fully into those needs. And so sometimes we just want to step back because it's messy and overwhelming. And James is deeply concerned for the poor. Throughout his letter, he's concerned. We see it because he knows the poor are being marginalized, that they're not being cared for the way that Jesus cares for the poor. And James expects that faith in Jesus will result in tangible deeds benefiting the poor and the marginalized among the church. But he is actually using this one example as an example of something broader, to make the broader case that faith without action is dead. Just like wishing well, those who are hungry and without clothes does nothing for them. Faith that doesn't express itself in actions, doesn't result in changes of patterns of behavior, ways of life, how we actually live means nothing. It's useless. And we know this. From other spheres of life, it's easy to, to understand, right? We can believe that dental hygiene is really important, but if you never brush your teeth and you never go to the dentist, is it really that important? We can believe that carbon emissions are a problem destroying our environment, but if we never think about how we might reduce our own footprint, then do we really actually believe that it's a problem? See, faith without actions is dead. And James is saying it's time to integrate. If we want to be people of integrity, we have to integrate our faith and our actions. But I think this passage begs a really important question. What kind of faith is James talking about? What does he mean when he says faith in this passage? Because we can read this passage and we start thinking and comparing it to other ideas of, of faith that we know from Paul and from Jesus and we can start to get confused. Because Paul, for instance, says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yeah, but then in this passage, James said, you see, a person is justified or saved by what he does and not by faith alone. So which is it? Is it faith or is it action? What kind of faith? Actually, this is, this is why Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a bit suspicious of the book of James. He, con he questioned whether it should be in the Bible, and he encouraged it not to be taught in the school that he was associated with it, because if you only read from James, you might begin to think that all that really matters is what we do, our actions, and if we do enough good things compared to the bad things, then maybe we'll be okay. But if you've been around PCTR for a little while, I hope that you've heard that this is not what we believe. This is not how we understand a relationship with God to work. 
And so how does the idea of faith that James is talking about and the idea of faith that Paul and Jesus talk about, how do they fit together? How does this work out? I think we get the clue in here from verse 19 because James was talking about a faith that is simply kind of mental assent, saying, yes, I believe that. In verse 19, he said this, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, he's saying this faith as a mental assent, yes, I believe in God. He's saying that that's actually inadequate. Because the demons believe there's one God, and yet it didn't change anything about them. It didn't change their behaviors. It didn't bring them salvation. All it brought them was fear because they were afraid of this God. And so it keeps pushing us to ask, what is this faith about? Faith in what? Faith in who? You know, what is this faith that integrates with our deeds that will lead to full life? Because it's not just enough to believe in God. And I hear this a lot as a pastor, you know, in all different settings, different conversations. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're a pastor. Yeah, I believe in God. Oh, great. And if the moment allows and the conversation seems open and there's a possibility, I often ask follow-up questions like, so, okay, great. What's, what does that mean for you? You know, what is this God like? Who is God? What, what does he do? How do you know him? There's a Gallup poll that came out from May of this year, and the question was asked, do you believe in God? And the result of that was that 81% of Americans say they believe in God. The same question has been asked since 1944, and this was the lowest response rate on record. 81% of Americans believe in God. That was the simplicity of the question. 68% of those 18 to 29 say they believe in God which means one in three between 18 and 29 is at very least unsure, if not rejecting the belief in God. And as tragic as these numbers are, James would say, but belief in God is inadequate. What's more important is, who is this God you say you believe in? Since the late 90s and the early 2000s, there's been a version of God that's been on the rise, especially among younger people. And it has it, been studied from youth that grow up in churches, in youth groups, and the way they've come to characterize the God that most of our youth are actually coming to believe in is the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. Moralistic, meaning God wants people to be good and nice and fair to one another. And good people go to heaven. Therapeutic is that God really, ultimately, wants us all to be happy and feel good about ourselves. A deistic God is a God who created the world, who set the laws of nature in motion, but then basically stepped back and watched it go. Doesn't actually get involved in day-to-day -day affairs, doesn't really involve himself with our lives, except maybe in this view, occasionally to solve a problem that we can't seem to solve so that we can be happy and feel okay about ourselves again. But this is the, the God, this is the faith of many who say, yes, I believe in God. It's the common worldview from 18 to 40. Well, if, if this is our faith, if this is what we're saying when we believe in God, then is it surprising that there's a disconnect between faith and actions, that there isn't any sort of significant transformation of attitudes, of behaviors as a result of faith? that it hasn't led to full life? 
I mean, this faith in this God doesn't actually call anything out of us. It doesn't demand anything of us. It doesn't believe that we could be more than simply what we are. No action required other than continuing to be the good person that I already know that I am. And to feel good about it at the same time, just as I am. And that, you know, since God doesn't really get involved in everyday affairs, then why do I need to actually spend any time talking to him? That same poll said that 42% of those who believe in God believe that God actually does anything in response to prayer. Less than half of those who believe in God believe that this is a God who actually gets involved in response to prayer. So really just focus on being happy and feeling okay. How's it working? Not very well. See, and this isn't the faith that James actually holds or believes in. He's holding up this faith as a problem because this faith does not lead to deeds or actions. Believes, James believes in the God of Abraham, the God of Rahab. He believes in the God of the Scripture and the God of the Gospel. A God who calls something out of us. A God who calls us into relationship with Him. A God who calls us to trust Him, to know Him, to respond to Him. It's why he tells the story about Abraham. Holds this up as the example and says, yes, faith like this is what will lead to salvation, to full life. Faith like this that's willing to be obedient to the point of sacrificing his own son Isaac. Takes us back to the book of Genesis where this story is told. Where Isaac is taken to the top of the mountain. Abraham binds his son Isaac and puts him on an altar, preparing him to be sacrificed as an offering to God in obedience to God. He lifts the knife, prepared to slay his own son, and in that moment, God intervenes. He says, stop. And when Abraham looks over, there's a ram that's in the bushes. God provides for him a ram, a substitute sacrifice, so that Isaac didn't have to be killed. See, this is a story of a God who got involved who, re, who responds to Abraham. Abraham responds to him. Abraham's faith and his actions are working together. And it's a story that also points ahead to the God that James believed in because it points ahead to Jesus, to the story of God's own son who was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. That we, bound by our sin, by our failure, by our past, by our regret, by our shame, by our hardness of heart, by our blindness, by our bitterness, we bound in all these ways. Yet faith into action says Jesus stepped into that place, offered himself as the sacrifice to die so that we could live, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have hope, so that we could have joy, so that we could have eyes to begin to see the world around us and step into those places of hurt and need. But if God doesn't get involved, that moment doesn't happen. If God doesn't get involved in human affairs, he doesn't send his son in the flesh to become the object of our faith. And if that didn't happen, then all it really leads us to is scrambling with every moment of our lives, trying to prove that somehow against all odds that we are acceptable and worthy. But see, faith in the gospel, as James would say, this, the faith that moves us to action says this, it says, I'm a sinner and I'm a failure 
And I should be bound. I should be bound to die. And yet, Jesus came to be bound and to die as a sacrifice for me. That's how much I'm loved. And if that's true, if that is a reality, if that gospel is the truth and we have our faith, we're truly putting our trust that we really believe this, then it will begin to change our everyday interactions. It will begin to change how we live. It'll, be, it'll change our approach to the poor. That the poor aren't just there to be pitied, aren't there to be served <clears throat> so that we can feel good and better about ourselves as a way to prove acceptable. The poor are there And we begin to recognize that we too are poor, poor in spirit, nothing to offer to God. And yet, out of his rich mercy and generosity, he gave the most costly sacrifice so that we would benefit. And maybe we begin to see the poor around us as those to whom we could serve in that kind of way. So the gospel begins to move us in action, even in the realms of hardness and bitterness, in our unwillingness or our inability to forgive. Those places where we have wounds that are still fresh and hurting. Things that we haven't even wanted to dare tell other people about, but we'll never forgive them. The gospel invites us to consider the wounds that Jesus took upon himself when we continued to reject God, when we continued to harm God, when we continued to live in such a way that we said, God, I don't love you. And yet Jesus took that so we could be forgiven. These, this faith, the faith in this gospel begins to move our hearts from us God in general to a God who would love us this much. And maybe we can begin to love as he has loved us, serve as he has served us. It changes how we see others in the world. We recognize that I know I have no place of superiority over anybody else. The only reason I have hope is because a God of grace and mercy has saved me at the high cost of his own And so I can look at other people and I have no place for condemnation, no place to be the ultimate judge, but instead I can look upon others with eyes of grace and of tenderness, of hopefulness, of mercy, and begin to step in, step toward them. See, this faith, faith in this God, in this gospel, leads us into action. But not just intermittent actions, here and there actions, It's a mix. It's more like the integration of all of those ingredients of concrete thoroughly and completely. Not some kind of still hanging out here on the side, but all of it mixed in completely every moment of every day. Faith, life, actions integrated. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was was thinking about reality television. Now, I acknowledge that reality television has its own share of fiction. I mean, so it's kind of like ironically named, but... But I was thinking about what it might be like to be on reality TV. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, I, I, it would be totally uncomfortable. I wouldn't want that kind of attention on my life at all. And as I was thinking about this, I thought back to the movie The Truman Show, if you've seen that from, from the late 90s. And this was the first time I even saw the idea of a reality television show because the character Truman, his whole life is a reality show. His whole life is this giant soundstage. And he's on camera every moment of every single day, and the world watches and sees him the whole time. And the amazing thing about Truman is that he is this inspiring, joyful, faithful, simple, beautiful man. And the world is in awe of who he is. He is the same in every day, every interaction. He's full of optimism and joy and hope 
everywhere he goes. And I started thinking about if my life was the Truman Show, if there were cameras on me every moment of every day, what would they see? Would they know that I follow Jesus? Would they know that I have a faith in a God who gets involved? Would they know that I have faith in the God of the gospel? That I'm a sinner and unworthy and yet loved beyond what I can imagine? Would they know that I'm no better than anybody else? Would they see my faith in, in the actions of my life? Not just on the weekend when I show up for worship and I, and I preach. Not when I am in a group gathered around a Bible or in those moments where I'm on my best behavior. What would they see when I'm alone in my car and that person cuts me off? <laughs> what would they see when I'm at home and we let the walls and the guard down and we're interacting with our family in kind of that unfiltered, unvarnished way? Would they see the same person that they see when I gather in worship? Would they see an integration of my life, of my faith, of my actions, of my attitudes? Is every moment of our life, our faith and our action integrated? And I know the answer to that is no, and this isn't to heap more shame and guilt on anybody else, but it is the invitation to invite us to consider that as we are works in progress, every one of us, are our lives becoming more and more integrated? Are we growing in that integration? Is it changing our attitudes, shifting our actions? Are we seeing the faith in the God who is the God of the gospel? Are we seeing it in how we live out every day? Are our lives, lives of integrity, sound and complete and pure? Are all of the ingredients mixed together? See, that will be full life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who got involved, who gets involved day to day. Thank you that we are not left to our own to just try to figure it out, to prove that we're good and acceptable, that you came in your son, Jesus, that you stepped in as the substitutionary sacrifice. Lord, may our faith in that gospel that we are unworthy and yet we are so loved, may that grow more and more within us and may it transform us from the inside out that we would be a people not just of faith in mental ascent of word, but that we would be a people of faith also in deed, of action, of attitude, that it would spill out into every moment of our lives, or that we would have integrity, lives full of faith and full of action. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.